another podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create a better awareness about Indigenous people to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is Elder Joseph Irvin Keeper. Joe was born to Joseph and Christina Keeper at Norway House, Manitoba in the year 1928. He is a proud member of Norway House Cree Nation. And Joe and his late wife Phyllis share four children, 12 grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Joe attended the Norway House Public School and the Portage Collegiate Institute while residing at the Portage Indian Residential School. In the years following his graduation, Joe has worn many hats. From 1950 to 1957, he served in the Canadian Army in Korea and in Europe as a surveyor and field engineer. In 1961, he started working with the provincial government as a community development worker, and after a decade of this work, he moved to the federal government in the Native Citizens Division. Joe's work for the Northern Floods Committee was impactful and thanks to his contributions led to the Northern Flood Agreement of 1977. In 1992, Joe was inducted as a member of the Order of Canada. Through his busy work life, Joe was a founding member of the National Indian Council, the forerunner of the Assembly of First Nations, and was also a founding member of the Manitoba Métis Federation. Joe's lifelong passion for community development has been focused in the areas of self-governance to help improve the social and economic conditions for his people. In this episode, Joe and Gordon sit down to discuss the historical significance of Norway House, his service in the Korean War, and the importance of autonomy and self-reliance for communities of First Nations in this era of reconciliation. I am your host, Gordon Spence, and my guest today is Mr. Joe Keeper. How are you today? No, I'm fine. I'm fine, you know, under the conditions as well as can be, I guess. Yeah, it's good to see you, and uh, it's good to finally have a chance to do this with you. Maybe we can just start by uh, talking a little bit about where you come from. I think you come from Norway House, and uh, it's a historic place, I understand. So, And I went to residential school there, too, at one time in my life, my early life, so... Uh, I was there last summer for a brief period of time. But maybe you can tell our listeners about a little bit about your your own community of Norway House. Yeah, well, I'm uh, Norway House has been there a long time. It, it grew up as a sort of a center for the Hudson Bay Company. But uh, as far as we can know, there people have been living in that area since time immemorial. At one time, when the Hudson Bay was sort of uh, all of Western Canada. And all the freight used to come down from, to York Factory and then through the York boats to Norway House. And Norway House became sort of a, a center. There was a, quite a large staff there. There was a big fort built uh, with many buildings that were torn down, unfortunately, right after the Second World War. There's only one building left there, which is the archway. And it's sort of deteriorating. It's But it has... a unique in Manitoba in the way it was built, and I hope that someone at Norway House can sooner or later can do something about keeping it up or restoring it. But as I said, the Norway House was a, quite a large center, and it, there was a village grew up there in the early 1800s. But eventually, it was called Rossville, and then the Norway House was named that 
because uh, I was in bed one time. We're trying to build a road from your factory to Norway House through the bush, and they'd hired a bunch of Norwegians to cut the trail. So that's where it got the name Norway House. Uh, over the years, of course, once the uh, railways got in, railways became sort of obsolete, and they weren't to use very much. They were used, though, for several years till the early 1800s, early 1900s, before the house and their route was uh, came through from, you know, from Churchill to the plot to, to, to Churchill. These two Bjorg uh, boats going up to Nelson House and to Sprit Lake. They'd go up the river there, to, you know, and turn onto the Birdwood at, at Sprit Lake. I guess some of the Bjorg boat men were keepers there because there's keepers at, the, as you know, at, at Sprit Lake. That's the, right. You got some uh, relatives there, I think. Yeah, there's a part of my clan. A, it was a William Keeper that stopped there, and he, I guess he married into that. It was funny. I was in Split Lake one time, many, many years ago. I was talking to one of the elders, I forget who it was exactly, and he was telling me about the first keeper. He said he increased, and you know, it was funny, but that was, it was about 100 years ago he was talking about it. But he said, this this guy came from the South. He said, he wasn't, still wasn't accepted as being, you know, a permanent resident of a Split Lake keeper. And then he married into the South. So there's a lot of keepers at Split Lake now. Right, yeah. They're quite a family. Yeah. You're Cree, obviously. Uh, I know a lot of you don't know this, but I, I know you're Cree. And uh, no, it was uh, predominantly a Cree community. Is it not? And uh, are there any Métis there? Well, yeah, well, there's what they call Métis. I guess that the term that yeah, people that are now in status are not that many now. You know, once that bill of C-35 came through, the Montreal and the treaty were very closely interrelated. So most of the people that used to be called considered Métis are now status Indians. So I don't know how many Métis are there anymore. It was sort of an artificial distinction that was made for a long time. Right. But there was intermarriage between the status and the non-status. Yeah. So, well, most of the people that are there now are status Indians. Yeah. Is that what's known as Rossville? Rossville is the, that was a reserve. That was the first permanent village was at Rossville. Yeah. Rossville was named after Donald Ross, who was a chief actor. And he was stationed at Norway House back in the 1840s. And you all heard of Alan Ross, of course. It was Alan Ross's great-great-grandfather, who was Donald Ross. He was stationed at Norway House. And it was at that time also that James Evans arrived at Norway House around 1840. And he uh, helped create the pre-syllabics, you know. The writing system. The, yeah, the writing system which is a, a great discovery here. I don't know why we the Cree don't continue to teach it, because it's, it can be so easily learned. You know, you can pick it up in a couple of days. But you see people teaching Cree and using Roman orthography. Well, you know, Cree, Cree words are pretty long sometimes. But when you try to write, write them in Roman orthography, they have, it's a hard time really breaking down, but if you use Cree syllabics, Cree syllabics were developed for the Cree language. And in the 19, early 1900s, the Northern Cree 
were probably the most literate people in the world because they could, their parents would teach the children the Cree. You know, my mother taught me Cree syllabics when I was quite young. You know, I didn't use them all, but I can still read the Cree syllabics, and I, I wonder why they're not used more. Yeah, well, I, I think it's uh, people have been gradually losing the language, and uh, there seems to be a revitalization of learning indigenous languages across the country now and not only language but you know getting back to your traditional cultural ways or you know at least knowing them and learning about them there's also a residential school in norway house at one time and it's one that i attended to and i'm not sure if you did and i went there this summer and it was uh the building was torn down there's nothing there yeah. right now and there is not even uh any kind of signage that says uh, that there was a residential school there. So just maybe a, they haven't quite decided what to do with that piece of property because it's kind of right in a private location, right? Yeah. Well, probably that, I guess it would revert to the reserve. Uh, the residential school at Norway, the main one, was run by the United Church. But there was also a smaller RC residential school which was sort of a part of the Cross Lakes Residential School, but it, it was at Norway House. And uh, when I was there, there was, there was a, the residential, I never went to the residential school there. There was a residential school that was run by the, uh, the, by the United Church. And there were people from Island Lake and God's Lake, and even for them from Cross Lake went there. Initially, it was run like all the old residential schools were. There was, there was a farm. And where the kids up to a certain age would go to school all day, and then after, when you became a senior, you'd work half a day and uh, go to school half a day. It was sort of self-sustaining because they had cattle and they had big gardens. There they did grow potatoes and all the cabbages and turnips and all that, store them in root cellars. And then they'd have a, a big herd of cattle that they would have. So there was a lot of... Uh, it was a self-sustaining thing because the churches didn't get very much money for each student. When I went to residential school in, in the 1940s, in 1945, this was at Portage Prairie, the school was receiving $180 a year per student during that school. $180 a year. So there's 100 kids. There'd be only that'd be $18,000. So you'd have to, the school at Portage that was still running the old way, there was cattle and horses and chickens and pigs and big gardens and then they'd grow some grain for the cattle too. So there was a it was a different system and it was a system that didn't do that much good for, for Indian people. But in the north, as I remember, people were still living off the land, you know, and going out to the resort areas, some of them would be there from early fall until breakup in the spring, you know, they wouldn't come back. So there was this push to get the kids to learn the English language. So a lot of them would let their kids go to residential school. You know, it wasn't always the first. It was a combination of two things, you know. And it wasn't until really, I think that probably in the 40s, when Canada and the government became more knowledgeable or paid more attention to what was happening to Indian people that uh, you had that family allowance and all that, that they started to force people to go to school, you know, 
prior to that, I don't think there was, at least in the North, there wasn't that same um, determination by the government to get all the kids into residential school. Yeah, I know there's a lot of uh, people that, like, I know some, I have some friends who are from reserves and uh, who never did attend residential schools. And I always wonder how they managed to escape the punishment of being sent off to residential school. So, well, they, they, they didn't really force them. They didn't force them. Yeah. No, else. Lots of families would take their kids out with the trapping cabins because, like, no, else at least, like, where, where my, my, and I never did, but my family, the keeper family, trapped in a place called Gull Lake. It's called Lawford Lake now. But that was about 70 or 80 miles. But they'd go there in the fall before it freeze up and stay there all winter. You know, that's where they lived. And my father was born at Walker Lake, which is just out of Cross Lake. And uh, as a matter of fact, Walker Lake was named after my grandfather, whose name was Walker Keeper. So there was a, it was a different setup. But later, I guess, they really forced the kids to go to residential school. When I was growing up, I don't recall that happening. It may have. I left Norway House to residential school when I was 13. Yeah. When I went to residential school, it was I was fortunate in, the, in that I, when I got to the school, they only taught to grade seven, and uh, and I was going to grade eight, so I was allowed to go to school in town. But I was the only one from the residential school going to school in town. So I used to I used to have to get up in the morning, do the chores and everything else, then walk to school and walk back. And uh, the residential school at Prairie to Prairie. At that time, and I'm talking about uh, uh, proportionately right now, there, was, there wasn't any, uh, that I recall, any physical or, or sexual abuse of the kids. And it was, it was fairly close to town. And uh, some of the parents were from Long Prairie, some of them would come on on the weekends to visit with their children. And I'm talking, we were raiding with other residents. So it was a fairly... Uh, Decent, decent school, you know. But certainly, residential schools taught you the psychological impact of trying to point out that you have to be white in order to succeed in this world, you know. So it, it, it gives you this inferiority complex. I've always felt yeah. one of the worst things that the residential schools did was to reinforce that feeling, and and so a lot of the staff that did that thought they were doing the right thing, you know. They were decent, decent white people, but they were so imbued right, with the belief of the, the culture. It was not only the residential schools, it was a, the dominant society, the white society, that believed Indian people had to become like white people. You right. know? Yeah. And it was the government carried out the wishes of the people, and then they forgot about them, you know. Yeah. They were doing their job without realizing, you know, doing their job was not doing it right, I guess. Yeah, that's right. They, yeah. they believe it's called, they talk about that in the States and the other places. They're beginning to talk about it more now, about this, this what they call implicit bias. It's something that's a part of, of the culture, of the white culture. And I remember when I first worked for government, there was a guy, my boss, he was a white man, but he was there now extraordinary person. He said one of the one of the false traits of the white society is their belief 
in their own superiority. And, and that was a part of, of uh, their treatment of, of uh, Indian children and Indian people generally. Right, yeah. You've accomplished quite a bit in your lifetime uh, in your own right. We'll get more into that a little bit later. Uh, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I would like you to talk a little bit about your father, Joe Keeper Sr., who was an Olympian in the 1912 Summer Olympics. I believe that was in Stockholm. How incredible is this? Uh, can you tell us a bit about your father? And My father was, uh, he was born in Walker Lake, and he grew up there. With, but he was there, part of the Norway House Nation. And then uh, around uh, 1898, when he was 11 or 12 years old, he came out and went to the residential school at Brandon. Uh, there were several people from the North came at that time. And he stayed there. And they never went home. When he was there, there was a, it was called an industrial school at that time. But he learned to be a carpenter there. And he finished what they called grade six. But he was uh, he was a good athlete. You know, he was a good runner. There was a, one of the instructors there who was teaching carpentry and other things. He loved sports. And he, he saw that my dad could run. And he, he sort of took, uh, took him under his training. I mean, my dad was also a good hockey player and a good footer, soccer player. But uh, around 1909, I think, in 1909, he ran in a, a race in, in Brandon, that sort of first professional race. There was a lot of uh, racing that was at that time was very popular. People would turn out to watch it by the hundreds. So uh, I guess some people saw him and they convinced him to go to Winnipeg. And he got to Winnipeg and he got a job with a, with a railway and uh, raced with this, well, what they call the Northern Athletic Club. And uh, the first year he raced, he beat everyone. As a matter of fact, uh, it shows the, how the attitude of the public at that time, the first race he ran, it was against 47 competitors. And the headlines in one of the papers, I forget which one it was, it says, Redskin shows clean pair of heels to 46 competitors. <laughs> and then after that, he became, they always call him Indian Joe. Like, you know. oh. so, but he, but he raced in 1911. He won a lot of races. I think we have 14 or 15 or more cups, and I don't know how many medals he won. But in, in 1911, he ran in a race at Fort William, a 10-mile race, and he, he set a 10-mile record that was uh, wasn't broken uh, for Canada, it was a Canadian record. It wasn't broken until 1936. But he he finished about half a mile ahead of the nearest competitor. And they said that uh, if uh, so, he'd been pressed, he'd have made a lot better. He probably would have had a lot better time. So then th that was when he was picked. That year he was picked to run the Olympic team. And he ran in, in Oslo, in Stockholm, I mean. That's the same year that Jim Thorpe ran. You know, the famous... Indian athlete, he was there at the same time. But my dad ran in the 5,000 meter race and he, he got something in his foot. He, he won his eighth, but in the final race, he got something in his shoe and he was, he came in eighth. But that was his best, one of his best races. But, really? but then in the 10,000 meters, he, uh, he came in fourth. He'd run, when he ran the 10,000 meter final, he'd run in about four or five races in, in a couple of days. 
So by the time the ten thousand meter came along, he wasn't really up to shape, I guess. But but he always said that he felt that he could have done better than fourth, because he said that he didn't have his own coach. He had a, a coach that gave him bad advice. He thought, yeah. and the coach later said that he did. He told him to keep pace with an American, and my dad said that he did then. But he said that when they were about half done, he could see that there were three or four guys ahead of him. So he had to speed up, and, and he caught up to them. And then uh, he came in fourth, just one out of the medals. But uh, there's no Canadian has ever done better in the 10,000 meter race up to this day. Yeah, that's still so, quite an accomplishment to go to the Olympics. Oh, yeah, he was like my father's in the. He's in the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, the, the Olympic Hall of Fame, the Canadian Hall of Fame. I don't know how many different Hall of Fame he is. And, and, and in 2012, they had a special Indian sports exhibition of uh, outstanding Indian athletes at the uh, Smithsonian American Indian Institute in Washington, D.C. And we were inviting my son and I and my grandson went down there. And I met, uh, I met the guys, I met Jim Thorpe's son. I met uh, a relation. Of a father, a nephew, the, the guy that had come second in that same race as my dad did. His name was uh, Louis Chawanaba. He was a Hopi Indian. He had run in the previous Olympics, the 1908 Olympics. But the, this was the first time, the 1912 was the first time there was a 10,000 meter race. But this Hopi Indian came from Carlisle Indian School. And Carlisle Indian School was a residential school in the States. It was sort of set up, and they had picked athletes from all over the United States to come there, and they trained them. And that was where Jim Thorpe came from. And in 1912, the Indian School uh, beat all the colleges, you know, the big colleges, to win the, the football championship of uh, the United States. So they had received training that my father never had. Like, my father just... I'd run out of the, you know, working man's race. But, but he never said anything about it, but I, I think that he could probably have done better. But he certainly did well. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody in Manitoba that has come near him. And, and interestingly enough, uh, there was a, the other famous Indian athlete, of course, one of the famous, at the time was Tommy Longboat. And my father and Tommy Longboat were in the same outfit in the First World War. They were in the same section, as a matter of fact. They were what called runners. They they would take messages in the night usually with the front lines. And uh, during that time, there were two divisional championships. And my father ran against Tommy Longbow three times, and he beat him twice. That was in the Army. But my father was decorated for bravery, too, in the, in the First World War. Well, he got the military medal for bravery. Yeah. So when I went to a residential school, people still remember Joe Keeper, the runner, and, and, and I was expected to be a great runner, too. I never could run like my dad. No. <laughs> I, was a, I was a very high, I was a good high school athlete. Were you born when, uh, when uh, the time when your father went to the Olympics? Oh, no, no. I was, uh, I was born in 1928. My yeah, father went to the Olympics in 1912. Right. I was just going to ask... Uh, what it must have been like coming home, you know, uh, after he'd won, after he'd ran in the Olympics. It was interesting. Well, there's a story, and I think there's a truth to it. 
you know, uh, he went and he went to Norway House for a while. And the guys, you know, the, the, the adult team is in, and there's a lot of runners, a lot of good runners, you know. So they were saying, you know, well, you know, that Joe, they ran against all these white guys, but, you know, he couldn't run against us. So, so they set up a race, you know, with all the top runners. I guess it was a 10 mile race or whatever. And uh, I was told the story. My dad never told the story, but he told it to my son. And then there was a one of the chiefs at Norway was Alec Duncan. I remember that race. But my dad said he started to run the race and he kept with the guys of went halfway through. And then he he turned on the heat and he finished about a half mile ahead of the <laughs> Well yeah. he, showed, he showed them that he, he could run against anybody. Yeah. You also served in the uh, Canadian Army during the Korean War yeah. in Europe. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you remember about this time in your life? Well, and that, well, actually, when I was when I finished high school, I finished high school in 1946. I, I wanted to go to university, and I when you wrote your your exams at high school at that time, there was a called junior and senior matriculation. And if you pass your senior matriculation, that was equivalent to first year university at the Manitoba. And you, you, know, you could go to university. So I I went to university for a couple of years and then I dropped out. But in the summertime, I, I got a job in the, in the mine at Flintlawn. So I worked there for a couple of summers. And then after that, my second year in university, I I dropped out. You know, I, I didn't really have to, but I. I was taking courses there, and I, I wasn't really interested. So I, I, I dropped out of school, and, and I, what I did, I, I went and I, I joined the Air Force for a while. I wanted as I take pilot training, and I was, I was accepted into pilot training, and then, I, but I couldn't land a plane properly. I, I kept bouncing. I, I sold it okay. Finally, they um, said, "Well, you have to CTU, and cease training," and I was so disappointed. It was after about six months in the airport. But he said, you could, we can send you to Summerside and you can take navigation, navigator training there. And I, I said, not really. I want to go back to Swilling Lake. So I, I resigned uh, from the Air Force. I was a, what they call a flight cadet. That's sort of like a junior officer. But anyway, I, I, I went back and I worked in the mine again. I got a job underground again. And uh, I worked in the front line. And then the, the Korean War started. In 1950, and the Canadian Army Special Force to go to Korea, and I, I thought, well, here's a, an opportunity to, and you would get you would get the same benefits as Second World War veterans. If you're unable to university, and you came back and paid for it, etc. So I joined the army, and I trained. Uh, we trained in um, Shiloh for three months, and then we were uh, we were shipped. Uh, I was an artillery surveyor. When the guns fire in the field, they don't fire straight at the, you know, they fire off map coordinates. So the guns have to be surveyed in on the map grid. And that was my, one of my jobs was to survey the guns in on, on the grid. But anyway, that's the training I had. A survey section, there were 10 of us. But we, have, we were sent down to Fort Lewis, Washington. And when we were going down there, my regiment was in a, Bad accident at New River, B.C. in November of 1950, that would be. And uh, we lost 17 men killed and 52 injured. It was a head-on 
collision between two trains. And then, but we went on, and then we trained in Fort Lewis. We were sent up to a place called Yakima and trained there in the hills because the terrain was like a lot like Korean. And then in April of uh, 1951, we were shipped off to Korean. We went by boats. They still had, they still had those old transport ships from the Second World War. So there were 2,500 of us into a, a big boat, and uh, we took 15 days to go across the Pacific. Well, it wasn't bad. I didn't get seasick, and uh, it was an interesting trip. We landed at Pusan, and then we were putting a camp there, and we got ready, to, and we, we went into action like uh, two weeks after we landed at Pusan. And then I spent a year in the, in the sort of the front lines, and then I came back in June. It was interesting uh, in that we, when we were first there, the Chinese were moving back. They had come down and they were being, they were, they were re retreating. We were attached to an American outfit. And we had to, we had to move practically every day or every second day. And we, so we always had to survey the guns. And we were always surveying the guns. And, and sometimes we'd be up with the infantry. And in one place, I remember, we were surveying the guns in and we put these markers in. Suddenly there's these shells come in, a couple of shells, you know, like the mortar shells. They look over and they're going to see it. Over the other side of this small valley, our troops pulling back. So we, we put them back. We almost got caught in between the Chinese and, the, and our own troops. But that was uh, the, the nearest we ever came to really getting it. We didn't, uh, weren't, weren't like the infantry. Yeah. But we spent, uh, like as I said, it was it was a uh, it was an exciting time uh, for a young man. How long were you there for? Fourteen months. Fourteen months. Yeah. And, uh, did you yeah. ever did you ever think your life was uh, in peril? But uh... Uh, uh, just a few times, like when we, because we were always on the hills, we'd pick up the survey markers when they were moving, and the Japanese had made had occupied Korea for centuries, I guess. But they had excellent maps, so that's the maps we use. And, and they had the, the map markers on top of the hills. So in order to survey the guns in, we had to use the Japanese maps, and we had to identify the markers. So sometimes we'd be up on the top of the hills, and we'd be you know, open to sniper fire and that. But, but uh, the nearest we ever got was when I, we were in a static line, and uh, me and another guy were told by our officer then we would have to go on a sort of sort of like a, a standing patrol to observe because they feel that the Chinese were building up an attack, they figured. And we had to go to this one hill and put a, one of our markers there and observe from there. And so Bill Gillis and I went up there. There was only the two of us. And I didn't think that was right. And I said to our officer, I don't think we should go up there like that. We're not instrument. We should have somebody with us, you know, right? No, he said, you got to go there. So uh, I said, well, what if I say no? He said, well, tomorrow you'll be down in the field punishment camp in Seoul, he said, which was like a military prison. So I didn't argue with him too. But anyway, we went up there, and we had a, a radio with us, but they had strung a, a telephone line up to where we were. And we, we were on a little observation post on the forward side of the hill. And Bill and I said, well, we're alone here. We know if the Chinese see us or they come over, we would probably get killed, you know. But so so we, we decided only one of us would go on at a time. 
So about one o'clock in the morning, our telephone went dead. But we still had the 300 set. Then first thing in the morning, the signalers came up, and the patrol had come over our hill, and they'd cut the telephone line about six feet below where we were watching, So, but we didn't see them, you know. They must have seen us, but we that was the nearest. I'm sure that those guys could have cut our throats or cut one of our throats if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But that was the nearest ever. And we were, once the, the next day, once the commanding officer of the outfit of our regiment found out we were out there, we were pulled off and we were put in a different place. And we had an infantry patrol with us after that. Yeah. Well, that was the nearest I can remember. But I was never, never in any hand to hand combat. Yeah. Yeah. How long was the Korean War? Well, it, 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 the Korean War, I don't know what it said, but starting in June the 25th, 1950, that's when the North Korea came down. Yeah. And they were intended on taking South Korea. And it lasted until uh, July of uh, 1953. Almost three years. An armistice was signed then. I don't know whether they've ever actually signed a, a peace treaty. Yet. They may have, but, but but that armistice is still there. You know? yeah. And the Americans have troops on the one side and then right on the other side are the North Koreans, of course. But we never fought against the North Koreans. It was mostly the Chinese. Yeah. The amazing thing to me is when we were over there, we used to go see some of these villages there were villages that would smell them there. They used a lot of garlic and that. But there were villages that had uh, thatched huts, you know, like they were just small thatched huts. And people lived off the paddy fields and that, and rice. And we're in one place in the, where we would see they were growing some grain. They didn't have any an automatic thing. They just beat the grain to get the chaff out. And then they'd put it into a thing and turn a, a fan to blow all the chaff away. But it was all very primitive. But yet, in the time when we were in the Garden of Static Line, the nearest town to us was a little place called Ijongbu, a little village. Now it's a city of around six million people, skyscrapers. So in, in that short length of time, South Korea has become a, one of the economic powerhouses of the world. Right. In that short length of time. Yeah. So there must be something in the, in the, in the Korean culture that allowed them to do that. And they have one of the best school systems in the world. And, and they're uh, the immigrants, the Korean immigrants, you know, they really are uh, ambitious to succeed. A lot of them go to universities and do very well. That's always amazed me. One of the things they did too, and I never took advantage of it, they pay for Korean veterans to go there every year. You have to pay your way by plane. But once you get there, they take over all their costs, put you up in the best hotels, and you're there for, say, 10 days. Take care of you all the time you're there. And you can go and visit the lines where you were. Yeah. Well, I never got back there, but a lot of guys never did. Yeah. And it's the Korean government that does that. And then when this COVID thing started, they sent all Korean veterans at mass who get mats from the Korean government. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and the other thing, like any Korean you meet, you know, that any of these, you tell them you were in the Korean War, they knew you were there and they bowed to you. Yeah, yeah. So really, uh, they know uh, the Koreans that know a lot more about the Korean War than anybody here. Like, we 
We always felt it was we were the forgotten, forgotten veterans. Yeah. Incredible story. Yeah. You were also a founding member of the, um, is it the National Indian Council or was it the National Indian Brotherhood? Well, it was a, a, sort of a, kind of a, I became a part of that. I was working for the government at the time, and uh, this guy by the name of Bill Washington, this was in the early 1960s, had to, he was a lawyer. He was the first Cree lawyer in Western Canada. And he was a very bright guy, but he had this idea of forming a, a national Indian organization, but to go across lines. He, he didn't, not treat it, not treat it, all that. Just to form them. So he called a meeting in uh, Regina, and we went down there. I was out there, and Marion Meadmore was there, and two or three, Chief Eddie Thompson, and Peg West was uh, along there. And there were other people, there's George Manuel was there. There were people, uh, Guy Williams, a lot of people from all across Canada that were leaders in their own communities came there, and they uh, thought this was not, not a bad idea. So they formed a, they, they appointed a, a pro tem, a, a temporary board, and I was chosen as a, to be the, the board member, temporary board member for Manitoba, and Marion was the secretary at Apple. And so I was a part of that for two or three years. But eventually, what happened is that the organizations, like the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood in Manitoba that had been formed we back in the 1930s, 1935, Eddie Thompson was one of the guys who had found it. And there was, in every province, there was a guy who had talked about organization. His name was Andy Paul. He traveled across Canada from reserve to reserve, and he talked about North American Indian Brother. That was back in 1935. And he hadn't, nobody had paid his way. He just traveled. Then they get to get the money to each reserve. But he convinced the people to start organizing. There'd been people that had done it before. So that they had formed organizations at that time. But at that time also, the federal government was against Indians organizing that way. But, but there, there were fledgling organizations that would be dormant. So in 1960s, once the National Indian Council, there was these people that knew about the organization, well, we don't need somebody to come and organize. We can organize ourselves. So there was a reaction. So after about three or four years, the Mandalorian Brotherhood became active. All the different organizations, the provinces became active. And they formed the National Indian Brotherhood. And at that same time, they formed the Métis organization too. So in that sense, I was involved, you know, with the National Indian Council. I think. I think the National Indian Council did have a, a role in it. Was a, it had a catalytic effect, you know, a reaction where people said, well, we don't need someone else to come and organize this. We can organize ourselves. And with the reserves, you know, you have your chief and council. You have a ready-made organization there. So, you, you know, you have the right leader like a David Cushane, who was the original grand chief of the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood, Took over, and he was an outstanding leader. You know, and they organized into regions, and then later they broke up, and I, I don't know exactly why they broke the band of Indian Brotherhood up. So you have a whole bunch of different organizations now. But uh, but at that time, there was the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood, and, and then there was 
organization and all the different problems. So in that sense, you know, I was involved in the early early days of organization. But I there was a sort of a as I said, I had a I can't really think I think and that it helped Indian people in the on the reserves to leaders to say, well, we, can, we don't need anyone to come to tell us to organize. We can organize ourselves. Okay. Yeah. I got uh, maybe one more question for you. You've got a wealth of knowledge, Joe, and um, I mean, I could listen to you probably all afternoon here. You hear a lot about uh, reconciliation and uh, trying to bridge the gap between, you know, indigenous people, not indigenous people, trying to create a better, better world, a better country for us. What do you think about this reconciliation, and uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I, I think the idea of reconciliation is is a good idea. I think that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was valuable in that it created an awareness of Indigenous people in Canada. You know, the public wasn't aware, but like any particular problem, awareness is only the first step in in solving it. The thing is to recognize what needs to be done and, and how it should be done. And I think that's the important thing. We don't need people feeling sorry for us and saying we can help you. There needs to be a two-way thing, I think. I think one of the things that is important is that dominant society needs to begin to not only look at, learn more about indigenous and Indian people, but also learn to look at themselves and say, you know, this is not their fault. It's not the fault of the Indian necessarily, but it's because of the way they've been treated. And the way they've been treated that way because the people in power, the white people with their industrial might and that, you know, from the first contact, you know, made, made rules up. And now we have to start looking at how we can change this and find a way that we can work together as equals, but until such time as, as we can work together as equals, we don't want someone telling us we know we can we can help you because we're not as well off as we are, you know. So it's a matter of, of education and educating in the right way and of both sides coming together to work out a system whereby they look not only at each other, but look at themselves, you know. It's a matter of, of, of Indian communities learning to care for themselves, to build, to become self-reliant, to be able to plan for themselves, not to become like what has happened in the last 30 to 40 years is there's billions and millions of dollars that have been spent on, on consultants, mostly white consultants, bring them in and they... We, we've come to depend upon them as Indian people to tell us what to do, you know, and then we do it. But there needs to be, there needs to be more emphasis in the indigenous communities on, on self-reliance that they can do things for themselves. And then you, you, you build, you pull in a, someone to help you when you need, like, if you want to build a bridge, you don't build a bridge by yourself. You hire an engineer to build it for you, you know. But you're in charge, you know. And I think that that is the thing that uh, once the Indian communities can become self-reliant, that's reconciliation. We're reconciled there. But right now, 
what is happening is you have a system, the Indian affairs system that self controls everything that Indian people do. You know, one of the things they had way back, uh, that evolution they called, you know, what they did is they, they gave the money for so the banks run it, which this was a, a good thing in many ways, I guess. But the money was still controlled from Ottawa, you know, and it really wasn't fair to a lot of the, the communities because, first of all, there was never enough money. Secondly, in order to administer money, you have to build a, an infrastructure to do that, you know. It's a long struggle. So I don't think it is, it is the reconciliation is, is important. I think it's, it creates and it's created a, an awareness and an atmosphere to allow things to happen, you know. But I think that it, it is important to, to begin to look at why this has happened and how can we best correct it, you know. Right. It is not something that's going to happen overnight because mm. Indian people have culturally came from a different culture, you know, yeah. which is not, it was not a capitalistic economic structure. It was quite different. So it's uh, it's not something that's uh, going to happen overnight, but it's, it's happening. Right. There's no magic answer, though, I don't think, you know. No, there isn't. It's a long process. It takes yeah. a long time, I think. Yeah. Well, Joe, you know, um, I really want to thank you uh, for taking this time to talk to talk to us. We've been talking to Joe Keeper from uh, originally from Norway House, Manitoba, and uh, on behalf of the Legacy of Hope Foundation, I really want to thank you for uh, for taking the time to do this with us, Joe. Thank you. Another thing, too. One one final thing. I always say, tell my kids. You know, they say he was he has become. A word that's used by that they, they say it means thank you, like, you know. But and I tell them, well, that's not the real word. So English means well, that's it, you know. That's it. English, you know. But I, but I, I often tell a story about this little guy, chief, who was used to attend these meetings, the white man and all that, and work out these solutions and all right. And uh, at the end of the the old, the, the chief would say. They will see money maga hit the way. Maybe Yeah. That's always gonna be, of course, I guess. <laughs> That's funny. I guess he had dealt with the white people long enough that he Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.